I think for some people, it comes intuitively. Some people are naturally creative, just like they're naturally, you know, good at playing the piano or things like that. So I think there's a certain innate level that comes with any discipline. And that's the easy part. If you find somebody like that, you can always kind of nurture that. The hard part is finding out how to tease that out of somebody who is naturally not creative or innovative. And that's what we try and teach. So just as you might come into a chemistry class not knowing anything about chemistry, we try and teach creativity within our design program in that very same way. Can creativity and innovative thinking really be taught? I'm sure most people have opinions on it one way or another, but if there's anyone who has good insight on this question, it's definitely Dr. John Desjardins. He's an associate professor of bioengineering at Clemson University, and he has been shaking things up in the educational space for over a decade. He is a director of the Senior Capstone Design Courses, where he mentors 15 small teams annually to develop innovative biomedical devices in partnership with local industry and clinical partners. TEDx Greenville program team member Scott Gould said this of John. He's a rare type of thinker, a guy who allows his imagination to run down unexplored paths and afterward develops what he concocted in his mind's eye. Some of the innovations that John and his team are inventing today in their bioengineering lab will be commonplace a generation from now. On this episode, we talk to John on how to teach people to be innovative. This is Of Note, a podcast on innovation. I'm Laura Quarter, Managing Director of South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. And I'm Joseph Nutter, co-founder of Design Sensory and PopFizz. We're talking to some of the most interesting minds in the South. They're hands-on, they're driven, and they're sharing their notes on invention, funding, entrepreneurship, growth, and so much more. So he's, he's probably hitting on the typical and classic nature versus nurture argument on this one, but it's probably quite relevant today because you've got so many people who, who have a skill or have some sort of predilection for uh, uh, some type of subject matter, right? Okay. And, and they learn that deeply, but then they, ha- they are then thrust into teams and then they have to kind of work together now. I mean, what is your take on this, Laura? Do you, do you feel like you can teach innovation, creativity, and... and Design thinking, all those words we throw in together. Um, I I think there's principles that can be taught. You know, we we love to talk about also, can you teach entrepreneurship? At the end of the day, I feel like, you know, as as even John kind of referenced, how do you tease that out of somebody? It's it's a motivator. You know, are they motivated enough to really want this and and learn how to do it? And if not, then they're going to, their skills are going to be applied somewhere else. Um, But just like, you know, when you were kids playing with Legos on the floor, that was something you either enjoyed, naturally went and did and tinkered with and built with, or you didn't. And you had other things you were doing instead. So while I think it's important that, you know, our education system provide that opportunity and even uh, focus on design thinking and and all those, uh, that collaborative kind of um, processes, but some are going to be naturally good at it and not. And, you know, having awareness that you have some people that are going to be that way is important in a work environment. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's what, that's what I love about the DEN program is it facilitates just that 
for engineers that might not typically have gravitated towards thinking that this was something they could even be participating in. The the DEN is a fancy name for what? What what is that stand for? Yeah, so the, the DEN is for the Design and Entrepreneurship Network, uh, which I love because one, it's just fun, right? Kids going, I'm going to my DEN. Uh, the other thing being, you know, they're tigers, you know, tiger DEN. So it just builds off of their whole brand uh, while having actual meaning. So John, what is uh, you know, can you give me again like an overview of of what his program is? I mean, he 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 talks about it. You know, there's there's a lot of educational. Uh, uh, um, Chrome, uh, you know, there. But in a sense, he, he teaches a capstone course, right, at Clemson. Yeah, so I don't want to speak to all the exact details of it, but broad overview, you know, they these kids sign up for a, a year-long class and so not even a semester, a full year, uh, and they assemble into, into teams. And they're all engineering-based at the moment um, of some kind. And they start trying to really problem-solve something around the bioengineering space. Bioengineering is the application of pretty much any kind of engineering or science discipline towards human health. And honestly, that can be anything from figuring out how cells interact with other tissues or, or materials, all the way up to designing, you know, imaging devices. And of course, they don't pick their problem necessarily. They try to get real feedback from clinicians, the market, you know, what is something that we don't just perceive as a problem, but is one that actually exists. Um, and so having to work along, can you imagine being, I don't know, 2021 20, and having to call up a clinician uh, and, and trying to really have a, a, a productive conversation with them. Um, that's intimidating even for some probably. So that just even that professional skill of having to talk with them uh, and figure out what is a daily problem they deal with um, and articulate maybe some possible solutions with them. Um, that's a big deal that they're offering something like that. So now they, they assemble into these teams and they start trying, as I think as John even describes it, you know, even very, very primitive mm -hmm. kind of testing, you know, putty. You know, things that we, we would have associated with in, in, in as, as kids as a basic way to start, what, would this even work with this, you know? So providing that, again, that's, I really have to go back to that kind of safe space to tinker, mm -hmm. uh, just like what we used to do when we were five. Um, and, and then kind of take it from there, you know, get that feedback from fellow students, you know, would this actually work? Um, so then they go into, you um, um, Validation, con ongoing feedback loops from the clinician in the market, uh, start putting different kinds of prototypes together. And then actually, so this is where I, I sat in doing actual, even animal testing on some of what they're doing and, and making the case even for why they were going to do certain kinds of testing they were going to do. Um, and then, of course, you know, they do, they have pretty, I don't know how frequent they are, but um, pretty frequent presentations or what we might call pitches of, of what they're presenting um, and kind of even validating why they're approaching it this way. Well, our clinician, you know, advise it this way. Um, so, yeah, hopefully by the end of it, you know, that they've come up with something that's actually viable. And yeah. I think as he alluded to, some of them have gone on to actually build right. businesses with. Some of them won't. And that's okay. That's not really the point. Uh, the point was that they went through and experienced a process that they can apply pretty much anywhere they would go afterwards. Yeah, because I mean, they're basically taken through sort of what needs identification, yep. right? Uh, needs needs filtering or sorting. Um, essentially, they're looking at addressable market, really. Right. Uh, and then barriers to entry, and then they'll iterate on solutions to that, test it, and then refine that until they 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 get to a potential prototype product. A real product development process over a course of a year. The typical senior design capstone experience is a two-semester 
kind of experience. Usually they're back to back and usually they're during your senior year. And first semester starts off with teaching you some basics of design thinking and the design process. In bioengineering especially, the process is one of understanding what is required of you. So biomedical engineering is one of the few disciplines where there is a huge government entity which regulates the development, sale, and marketing of biomedical devices. And if you don't know how to do that, if you don't know how to follow all those rules, you can't do it. They'll shut you down or they'll even put you in jail. So a bioengineer brings that specific perspective to any particular device development. So we teach that in bioengineering. They bring their engineering discipline to that, everything from implant biocompatibility to mechanics and testing. They, they learn about cells and, and all that kind of stuff. And so they bring all of that technical experience into the, their capstone experience. And then we just need to find a problem. After they know how to do it and all the rules to follow, and after they know what their particular background specialty is, they pick a project that kind of marries the two and they get busy innovating. A lot of our student teams have ventured national competitions and, and placed or, or won awards and things. And so just, I mean, to talk about some of the ones from last year, they are things like making a, a cutting instrument that helps surgeons that are doing total knee joint replacement cut off the top of a piece of bone more safely so that it doesn't damage tissues as they're going around it. There's a team last year that was working with organ transplant surgeons down at MUSC, and they made basically a, a little tiny, it looks like a little spaceship that can deliver therapeutics under the skin through a kind of a, an evolution process. So you put the little cells in there and they grow and they're happy in this little home and then they come out the bottom when they're ready and they basically deliver anti-rejection therapy agents to, to prevent organ rejection. There are infant warming caps to prevent brain injury following asphyxiation with, during a difficult birth. There's, I mean, it's just like, we're on like our, our 300th project, so it spans the range. The products that we make, they fall into three pots. They fall into the, that was a nice try, really didn't get it right that time. We're gonna try that one again sometime in the future. There, there's the, that was cool. If we could just work on that for another year or so, maybe we can get that to the next stage of potential innovation and we'll bump that up into, say, our Master's of Engineering program or, or try and get a, a student to continue it for another year or work it into a research project for another year. And then there's the third group, which is just like, you know, wow. Those go straight to a patent application. Somebody wants it, it gets licensed out, and a company starts to innovate around it. They are biomedical devices, so they naturally have a two to five year runway that they have to follow before they're even able to be marketed or sold. And so within that spectrum, you know, if we get one out of a hundred that actually makes it to, to market, we're considered pretty successful. We have had one make it to market. We've had one uh, startup company that, that formed actually from the design team itself and worked their way through a final product and sold it. What we are trying to do is develop that infrastructure in South Carolina to more readily incubate and nurture these projects moving forward. So that's where the whole innovation side of the state comes in. Our tech transfer offices are becoming much more integrated. We're providing more access and capital to these projects. And we just received a grant to assist us in doing that here for the next three years. Do you remember the first time that you met John? Yeah, so it was just a... Uh, 
I try to do this as much as possible pretty much with anybody all over the state. If they've got something cool they're working on, they want to share it with me, I'm there. Um, so John, um, we met through email, and I was like, you know, can I can I just come up there and see what you're doing? You know, I read articles, things like that. He's like, sure, come on up, not not even a hesitation. Um, and so we talked through, uh, and of course we sat in his den and kind of walked me through his whole process there. Had even had some students kind of come and going. And we talked obviously about his program, but then also his personal pursuits and some of the the things that he's developed. Um, and eventually, you know, we hung out for about an hour or so. He's like, well, I, I actually have a, a student presentation that's going to happen, you know, right down the hall. Do, do you, would you like to come sit in? And I'm like, sure. I don't want to be where else to be. Let's go. Um, and so, yeah, it was uh, it was impressive to watch, especially so I, I, I've, I'm become more familiar with programs like this from the more the business school side to do something like this, but not so much from the engineering side. And so to watch them, just the, in my mind, comparing the two, obviously they are very heavy on the technical as they should be uh, versus, you know, the more business school presentations are very heavy on the market analysis and the numbers and, and this, that, and the other. So that was fascinating to watch from, from that perspective. But just listening to them having, you know, the kinds of meetings they were having with the clinicians and, and that constant market evaluation they were doing, it's like, Oh, I'm a little. This is this is impressive. Um, and so this group in particular, um, they uh, they spend about I think a good 15 minutes on the what what they do. Um, 15 minutes on their presentation, and um, and they were eventually you know they're throwing out all this jargon. I don't understand half of what they're even talking about. Um, and 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 we get to medical kind of, jargon. Yeah, medical yeah. jargon. Yeah, mm. or just you know engineering terms. And I'm like, this sounds cool, but I have no idea what we're <laughs> What we're like referring flying to. over your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah which yeah. is common. Which I, I mean, I, I encounter that almost on a daily basis, and I, I love it because it's constant learning of something random. Uh, but that's really cool. And um, anyways, this, we get to kind of question answer time frame with them, and I'm just kind of sitting again, kind of nodding, good, good questions that are being asked. And eventually I'm like, so wait, that's an umbrella you've just made, right? But for, for an artery, they're like, they all just kind of chuckle, but they're like, yeah, it's an umbrella. <laughs> So, I mean, I, I reference that if, you know, sometimes we don't have to overcomplicate a process or inspiration can really come from just about anywhere you're looking around to solve what is a real problem. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was an umbrella. That's cool. It, it, whatever the, the experience is with them, it's definitely an eye-opening one, right? Someone definitely learns more about who they are and their place with others and uh, uh, and how and the things that they need to work on. So uh, John was very, uh, I think he was he was very much alluding to that sort of personal growth that happens as a part of it. Because yeah. you're talking about kids that, you know, are are very talented and super smart, and they've gone through most of their academic careers probably excelling. Mm -hmm. And now they're thrown in a place of, oh, I am failing constantly. And so that's I, so that personal growth of going mm -hmm. through, yeah, it's not going to be perfect that first go around, um, and that's okay. That's perfectly okay. Yeah, he was he was talking about how very humbling it is for everybody involved. Our students are quite exceptional. There's a high GPA requirement to get in. The coursework is very rigorous. It's it's very um, applied, I guess. There are bunches of different disciplines that you can study, and so they're used to getting a lot of stuff right. They're used to getting A's and B's. They're used to knowing what the right answer is, and if they get the wrong answer, they want to know what the right answer is. Design is not like that. Design is fundamentally the idea that somebody's going to call your baby ugly, and you got to get used to it. So it might be the first time that somebody actually is confronted with that. It's like, well, why? 
And you're like, well, because. What is the right answer? And, and you'll say, I don't know what the right answer is. You're the, you're the person designing it, but I know that's wrong and I know that won't work. Go try it again. And so it's the process of, of iteration that's required of them. And that's, that's an uncomfortable feeling for many people. The idea that you can, can put your most creative idea out there for somebody to look at and they say it's not good enough challenges many people right to their core insecurity. And that is a, a very transformative experience for a student. And we do that for a whole year. And so they, they get up in front of us for, for a whole year and they tell us what their ideas are and, and they keep putting lipstick on the pig. And you're like, yeah, it's still ugly. <laughs> uh, and so uh, until, until they, you know, really kind of adopt, until they really drink that Kool-Aid and really start thinking creatively and innovatively and, and iterate and understand that that is the process we're trying to teach them, until they get that, they really don't really kind of get it. And that is fundamentally what we're trying to teach them to think creatively, to adapt, and to be okay with insecurity. We require that of them that they, they show us that they know what they're talking about and they can apply it to their particular problem at hand. And that might be something as simple as being able to analyze the device that they've made, being able to apply a certain theoretical tool to it, being able to pull up the literature in that particular area or test it according to a certain standard that they've learned about, or even find the resources on campus that will enable them to push that design project a little further. The second thing we require of them is teamwork. This will be probably the first time where they voluntarily form a team and they have to make that team function for well over nine months. This isn't a two week, make a poster and say goodbye kind of thing. This isn't a, okay, I'll do all the work this time, but next time you have to do all the work kind of thing. This is a, a long-term commitment to a group of people that, that you've chosen to pull off a project that requires significant time and energy. They have to make up schedules, they have to have documents, they have to give presentations, they have to coordinate trips to, to visit clinicians, they have to divide and conquer when necessary. And so from the teamwork perspective, if they don't get that right, it all crashes and burns. We do get teams that do it, that crash and burn, and then they go through that hard rebuilding process. And so if they don't do that right, the whole thing just doesn't work at all. I think in the world of engineering, research, and creativity, failure is a daily occurrence. So, you know, we're, we're working in areas where nobody has done anything before. So if we're designing something, we're doing something that no one's done before. If we're doing research, we're answering questions that nobody's answered before. So failure is kind of part of the daily routine. Coming to grips with that, and understanding that that's okay, I think is a major inflection point for most students. Trying to get them to fail early and fail often and becoming comfortable with that is a really important part of the process. So we, we do teach that, we try and make that part of, of their learning process. For me, I, I've always just been okay with that. You know, build it until it breaks. The, the engineering motto is, you know, keep designing it until it doesn't work anymore, then you'll know you've done your job. <laughs>
One of the most important aspects of human-centered design, or design thinking, is empathy. John adds, Design thinking is the process of, first of all, identifying and having empathy for the customer or the, the person that you're designing for, understanding their problem, so after you know who they are, understanding what their problem is, defining that, prototyping that, and then testing that. Empathy is, is fundamental to designing something. If you do not regularly communicate with your stakeholder, with your customer, and understand why they need what they need and what they need, then you're not making the right thing, period. So we, we teach a regular, what we call a voice of customer experience, where they have to go and say, what does your customer think of this? What does your customer think of this? So, you know, before we critique it, we make them tell us what their, what their surgeon thought of it. And if it's not the surgeon touching it, we make them talk with the, the nurse practitioner or, or the patient, or we make them go out and we get that, that empathy, not just from the understanding of who the person is, but what their needs and desires are. And we boil that all down to what we call a, a need statement, but also from, from their understanding of what a minimum viable product is, what is their value proposition? You know, is it, is it making something easier? Is it relief of pain? Is it ease of use? These are really soft goals, but they all speak back to the empathy of the customer. You know, why do you choose this one? Why do you need that one? And some might just be a color choice, but if you don't get the color choice right, you're not going to sell the car, right? So understanding why people who buy red cars like red cars, it's the same for a biomedical device. We asked John what were some other tools he felt the students should learn to assist them in their innovation. This room is the DEN, the, the Design and Entrepreneurship Network. We call it the boardroom because it's got little whiteboards on it. But it's fundamentally a creativity and ideation space. It's a place where students can come and meet and talk design. It's a hangout space. It's got a lot of cool gadgets and widgets and distraction items, study hall space, but it's, it's basically our innovation space. In the area of design, uh, I find it most useful to be around those things that could possibly be used. So you, you have to find yourself in a space where there, there are opportunities to just be creative. So also in this space, what we call low res or, or shoestring prototyping capabilities. Many people think that 3D printing is kind of that first pass, but it's, it's fundamentally not. Play-Doh, toothpicks, popsicle sticks, those are the, the lowest resolution of availability of making something physical. So we demand of our students that they go through two or three iterations of making things out of everything that's free. Go to your kitchen, make me something. And they come back with the wonder, most wonderful things. You know, go tear something apart and bring it back and show it to me. And so we, we go from everything from ideation on post-it note to Play-Doh to uh, rough prototypes to 3D printing to final production. All of that is within 300 feet of us. The den, it, it, what's, you know, what was interesting for me when I went in there too is that it, it, it was very personal. Mm -hmm. um, it, it reminded me actually of a book I read a long time ago called Snoop. And that book was about how our space uh, reflects, you know, our psychology and mm -hmm. so forth. And, and there's a lot of what that book would call personal residue. Uh, but it was great to see it. John had pictures with him and students in there. Um, he he had, you know, and the, and there were some beautiful um, 
sort of testimony, I suppose, to the transformational aspect of that program with him. Uh, one of the students remarked about how she found her, her wings as part of that. So I, I thought I thought it was it was such a wonderful space for that. You talk about play mm-hmm. and and it, that's also something that speaks to me because uh, you know as as someone who comes at this as a designer um I've always uh, you know there there are other uh iconic designers or legendary designers who talk about that the, the word serious play. Mm-hmm. And and so you know what what do you think and he mentions design thinking too. Uh, in his conversation, I mean, at the end of the day, we started talking greatly about empathy. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's a big buzzword. Mm. Um, what What do you think? Why do you think empathy is important to play and to this process? Yeah, so I almost feel like you know the design thinking schools and, and the process. It's almost bringing us back to what we naturally used to do to begin with. Again, like it's, it's kids playing, mm-hmm. um, but it's really just critical problem solving. And I feel like sometimes now when we kind of look at our work environments, we automatically gravitate towards it's got to be, it's got to work, or we, you know we don't really create environments that are. Um, conducive for for failure necessarily but that is absolutely essential and that failure though is how how you go through that and how you how you have motivation to go through that failure is the empathy part of it you have to really understand especially you think about bioengineering you know they're talking about you know patients you know, having real empathy for who you're actually trying to help at the end of the day uh, so sometimes yes that's a clinician so that they can perform a, a certain surgery in a better way um, have better results ie then for the patient themselves um, some would call that putting your customer at the center of all that and having real empathy because if you can put yourself in their place then you're going to come up with the best solutions which you're then going to find in that play that play zone so that empathy is really you know you we should have empathy for everyone, regardless of business setting or not. So that's that's why I almost feel like some of this is getting us back to who we are, just human roots and, 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 and companionship amongst people um, anymore, but bringing that into our work environment and not being afraid to do that in our work environment. So it probably like echoes the, 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 the question I asked you at the beginning, you know, can you teach creativity and innovation? I guess it's, a, so can you teach people how to be more empathetic? empathetic? Yeah, I almost, well, I, 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 I want to say yes, just from our our society standpoint, can you teach someone to be more empathetic? Yes. Um, especially, like I said, a process like John's forces you to. I mean, again, I'll, I'll bring it back to their application of, of a patient. You might not have ever, you might not have ever had some kind of amputation, but you can have empathy for it. And how do you really have empathy for it? It's going through a real discovery process of what does that person's day look like every single day? What are their struggles? Yeah, and if you're not on the front lines of witnessing that or experiencing it, at least having the ability to project that is important, right? Right. I think he also sort of said that with respect to uh, working as a group and as a team. You might not be the most empathetic person, but you are working with other people who Mm -hmm. may have firsthand experience or knowledge of that. And then they have to kind of bring you into that problem space as well, right? Right. So John was really big on communication. Mm. Um, he, he talked a lot about how, you know, especially I suppose in the health and, and medical uh, arena, how, you know, they have to develop a, a prototype or a sketch. They've got to do something that explains to you what their idea is mm-hmm. and in many ways unpacking that empathy piece. Um, what are some tools that help do that? Uh, you know, I know we we talked about the den and and and, and the, as a space, but but just you know, what have you seen are are tools to help people present their ideas and or prototype? 
entrepreneurs, engineers, whoever the idea person is, has some real hesitations about sharing their idea, uh, thinking it's going to get stolen. Somebody else is going to run off and, and take it, and, and then I'm left out on the on the curb of, of a missed opportunity. And I I have still, knock on wood, have not seen that ever happen in my line of work. Uh, typically speaking, you know, there's a reason why you that idea sparked to you. You know, you've had that empathy, you've gone through that discovery process, or you have personal um, motivation, or whatever that might be. You know, you kind you've kind of created yourself as your own categorical expert. So, for somebody else to share that same motivation to go do it kind of really slim. And then even if they did, to do all that background work you've probably already done, they'd be so far behind you, you'd be first to the market to begin with. And, and I'll also throw out there this kind of a side thing. Even if that did happen and someone went to the market before you, they're going to, if, if it truly is disruptive and going into the first time in the marketplace, they're going to be paying for a lot of costs and mistakes that are inevitable in the whole process that you wouldn't have to do. So I, I guess all of that to say, share your ideas and whatever form that they're in, because that's the only way you're going to start getting help from people that genuinely want to help you, especially when you think about your professors or um, fellow colleagues, uh, incubators, accelerator programs, small business development centers, whatever they are, they don't want what you have. Yep. One of the fundamental aspects of, of design and innovation or entrepreneurial endeavors in general is, is the idea that, that you don't talk to anybody or you shouldn't share your idea with anybody because somebody's going to steal it. And that might be the case. But again, if you think about it from the perspective of your idea is your baby, there are not many people who want your baby, even if it's a cute baby. It's, you know, there, there, that's, there's just not many people that, that you're going to encounter that will steal your idea. And if, if you feel that way, there, there's paperwork to handle that. But it's really, really important to share your ideas. To, to collaborate, to, to work in teams, to develop your idea, and to get that hard, cold advice that basically like, yeah, no, nobody wants that. Or you'll get it, oh yeah, somebody made that last year. And you'll be like, oh no. And you, know, you can sit on an idea for 10 years and not know that unless you talk with somebody. So we really, really stress the idea of, of sharing your idea. Because until you share it, you're not going to know what's wrong with it and how to refine it and how to make it better and how to form teams and how to get collaborators and how to access the resources necessary to, to, to move that idea forward. It's just you. You and an idea that sits in a book forever and ever and never goes anywhere. So don't think that you have to innovate on your own and don't think that you have to be secretive about innovation. Innovation is a dynamic open process that requires collaboration for you to make it better. I'm John, and those were my notes on innovation. This has been Of Note, a podcast that gets up close and personal with innovative people so we can learn from their successes and failures. I'm Joseph Nuther. I'm Laura Quarter. And this is an original production by the South Carolina Office of Innovation and Design Sensory. Our producer and editor is Hunter Foster. Our sound engineer is Mike Deering with original music by Matt Honkinen. Check out more interviews, our blog, and resource area at scribblesc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Ready, Set, Scribble. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, keep pursuing your transformational ideas.
next time on Of Note. Well, I guess about a month or two after that, when the sheriff showed up to put a padlock on the building and arrest the financial uh, officer, I began to understand that, hey, if you can't understand the answers that are given to you, then either you're too dumb and shouldn't be investing your time and your money in the company, or someone's not telling you the truth. 